Today, it's going to be about the death of stars. But you'll see there's a very beautiful side to this story. Um, in fact, uh, maybe some of the most beautiful images in um, all of um, astronomy we found associated with death. Okay. Um, so, to begin with, um, why does a star have to die? Well, it's limited by its reservoir of fuel. Uh, a star burns because it's hydrogen, it's mostly hydrogen, um, in the center of the star, uh, because of the crush of gravity, it's very hot, and the hydrogen is ignited. In a thermonuclear sense, you can fuse hydrogen atoms into helium atoms, and this actually um, releases energy. And the reason is that um, the four protons um, that fuse together um, eventually to make up a helium atom um, have slightly more mass um, than the helium at the end. So, and this difference in mass is released um, as energy thanks to Einstein's famous equation E equals mc squared, which you know many of us remember from early days in school. E equals mc squared. And so this gives um, a, a percent or so of the mass of the star can turn into pure energy, the mass of the center of the star, certainly where it's hot enough. And uh, so this is how stars um, stay hot. Um, it keeps them going, but eventually they must run out of fuel because they've turned their central hydrogen supply into helium, and to burn helium uh, is very, very much harder. You need much, much higher temperatures. And the only way to achieve that is if the star, pushed by gravity, collapses more, and that signifies the star is going to start its death throes. So um, what is the end of this process? Um, well, we call the final remnant of a star, like the sun, um, and we see some of these stars in action, older than the sun, dying already in their death throes. I'll show you pictures in a moment. We call the end point a white dwarf um, because it's incredibly um, small and compact and it's white hot, basically, because of the gravity has forced it to be very hot. But at that point, it, it has no more fuel, and it sort of sits there as a, as a final remnant of, of this star. Okay, um, so uh, meanwhile, as the center collapse, collapses, the outer part of the star swells up because of this release of energy in the middle, and um, you, you form what is called a giant star, and it's big, and therefore it's... Um, highly reddened because it's so large, it's swelled up so much. These are red giants, and red giants are enormous things. Um, uh, a red giant might be typically um, much larger than the Earth-Sun distance, um, which is you know, 96 million miles. So the Earth uh, would be swallowed up when our Sun turns into a red giant. Uh, life would not be pleasant at all, it would be the end of life. And here you can see this, this relative change in size um, the, um, from the tiny white dwarf in the very centre, which I'll show you in a moment, but the, our, our star, like the sun, um, is, is, will, will um, fade until um, it becomes um, enormous, right? So uh, this is this uh, enormous size. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, so... This um, difference in fuel um, is the energy which keeps us going. So let's now talk about, about a white dwarf star. Um, 
it's incredibly dense. Um, the typical density of the sun is, um, you know, it's an everyday density. It's roughly the same as that of water or um, something that would not surprise us very much. Uh, roughly one teaspoonful of sun weighs about a gram. If you could ever get that teaspoonful, which is not easy, but, um, but a white dwarf, if you could imagine a teaspoonful of a white dwarf, that would be many hundreds, maybe a thousand tons. Hard to conceive of. The matter has gotten so compressed, all this mass of the star is now suddenly inside um, a thousand kilometers. And, and so you get this um, enormous increase in density. So that is the fate of this star uh, at the end of the day. Um, and um, so this um, sort of schematically um, shows, shows you this, um, this process. Um, and um, red giant forms, and then it too um, swells away and there's no more energy release and you're left with this white dwarf and all the remnants of this star are um, exploding outwards, basically expanding outwards. And we call this phenomenon of, of a central, very compact star with a nebula around it. It's called a planetary nebula because the early astronomers centuries ago when they didn't really understand what they were seeing, saw these fuzzy nebulae and they resembled a little bit planets. We know now that they're certainly not. And then eventually that planetary nebula disperses and we're left with the white dwarf. And that's all that's left at the end of the day. And uh, the, the planets near, near that white dwarf may, may well have been uh, uh, fried to death. Okay, so here we are. Um, because in astronomy we look at many millions of stars around us and we can see them, it's just like if you survey the population of a city, um, like London, you find young people, you find old people, and you could do statistics, you find the average, you know, date of birth, the average longevity of life, etc., etc. Well, in astronomy, we can catch stars in the act, as it were, in the process of dying. And so only a small fraction of those stars are dying, but when they do die, they leave these wonderful images for us to photograph with, um, with our telescopes, especially space telescopes. So this is one example of um, the death throes of a star. And at this point, a star, uh, much like the sun, um, has uh, collapsed into this central, incredibly compact remnant, which we call a white dwarf in the center. Um, and then it's really run out of all fuel, okay? And it can no longer, and it, then it only cools down. It starts off white hot, but then it cools down and becomes black. And then we, we have a hard time seeing them at all. But in the meantime, over maybe astronomically a short time, tens of thousands of years, all of this nebulosity, the, the gases from the red giant are being propelled outwards by the release of energy. And in doing so, they give us these beautiful images of hot gas um, gradually cooling down. And much of this gas is made of ejecta from, from uh, the center of the star, um, the, the effect of nuclear reactions. And it, a lot of it consists of carbon, and also it makes dust. And this is really interesting because carbon is maybe the most important element um, for life on Earth, right? Um, and um, it basically, uh, this is the origin of the carbon in the universe. It's from the death throes of stars um, like the sun, but of age far before the sun, obviously, because they were born far before the sun. And it's from their ashes, as it were, that um, all of our uh, organic material eventually is, is synthesized. Um, and as well, um, there are these, a lot of the condensation is into dust as it expands away, and it's these dust particles that eventually agglomerate together um, and in conditions like the early solar system, that's where these dust particles would have formed a nebula that condensed into basically asteroids and eventually planets around some new star. 
Okay, so, so these nebulae are the key to everything, really. Um, this particular one, uh, we like to name some of these, it's called the cat's eye. But again, um, I, I just want to show you some other terrific examples of, of such nebulae. So here's, a, here's another one. And you can see, um, again, um, this is what happens, will happen to our sun in about five billion years' time. We're in the middle, middle age of the sun. The sun still has lots of fuel. It's going to um, keep on, uh, maybe with a little bit of extra heating, uh, that might be giving us, or will give us even more climate change in this in the future. I'm sure we can learn how to cope with that one day. But, but eventually, if I take the long time scale, then um, the outer parts will, um, ex will expand dramatically. They'll, they'll fry the Earth, the nearby planets, uh, to a crisp. We will hopefully, uh, in a few billion years, have learned how to escape much further away to a better environment. But uh, uh, that's for the very distant future. And leaving these magnificent nebulae as a witness to what happened. Here, so here's another one. Um, again, um, we see the, the shining white dwarf, tiny compact star, remnant in the center, with this huge nebulosity that's been expanding away, the death throes of, of what was a star, much like the sun, after billions of years have elapsed. Again, another example. Um, these are some of the most beautiful images in the sky, actually, taken with, um, in, this, in this case, these are all from the Hubble Space Telescope. Other telescopes can, space telescopes are doing similar things. And... Um, just totally dramatic things. So what one can really see the, um, the cinders of the star being dispersed eventually um, to uh, reform in more distant environments, um, in clouds that eventually sweep these things up and collapse, um, full of these ashes and eventually will make new stars, new planets, and all the rest of it. Which is So life really is... Uh, regenerating itself in a sense. By life, I mean the planetary systems. Actually getting to life on a planet is a whole other story. But, and here's one of the, another spectacular example of a planetary devil. You can see the, the white dwarf there in the center. And uh, you can see the successive shells. I mean, sometimes it's not just one single shell that, that, that expands, but there's a period of quiescence and another, another mini explosion. And all these are, are the star dying away. Okay, so it's... Um, so these are all stars, um, much like our sun, maybe twice the mass of the sun, half the mass of the sun, that have been um, uh, going through the, the, these processes and leaving their, their white dwarf stars behind. Okay, um, so let me now um, tell you what happens uh, in an even more dramatic situation. So let's imagine, well, the sun, I, I, I said, it's, it goes through its cycle of life, it takes... Billions of years, eventually it becomes a red giant, which itself may survive quite a long time before it finally turns in its planetary nebulae, short-lived by astronomical standards, but still hundreds of thousands of years, um, perhaps, or 50,000 years. However, if the star is, um, say, 10 times the mass of the sun, or 20 or 30, then gravity is much more intense. Okay, so the star um, has a more dramatic fate. In fact, the white dwarf um, is um, a stage of matter that's, supported basically by compacting the, the atoms as close together as you can, the atoms. And so the, the electrons, which are, which are light particles, whiz around and give you the pressure, and they prevent the star from collapsing further. Um, so that is, that is the white dwarf state. But if you imagine putting even more pressure onto the star, then you can compress it even further. And at some point, it, you have no more atoms, they've all long gone, and you actually can force the nuclei themselves to basically touch each other. 
And so, of course, there were electrons, there were protons, and when you squeeze everything together, the electrons match onto the protons and give you what are called neutrons, neutral particles. And so that's why we have the ultimate collapse um, for a star 10 or 20 or 30 times the mass of the sun is what we call a neutron star, which is smaller than a white dwarf. A white dwarf um, already is a thousand kilometers, right? I mean, that's sort of you know, the size of England, if you like. But a white dwarf, that's it. But for a neutron star, now we're discussing 10 kilometers, basically the, a part of the size of London. So imagine the whole star being compressed in something incredibly more dense. And so I won't even, I mean, one teaspoonful of neutron star material would be, um, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe up to a trillion times. So it, it's significant. It, it's hugely dense, Hard, impossible to imagine. But also, for the massive star, everything speeds up. It, all, it, it happens much more quickly. And so here now it is a real explosion. So why is it that um, stars more massive than the sun um, go through this dramatic phase of a more violent fate? It's because they're very spendthrift. Um, the more massive a star, the brighter it is, because it has all this hydrogen in the centre burning away um, at a slightly higher temperature than extra gravity, and therefore it uses up its fuel supply much more rapidly. So it turns out that a massive star um, doesn't, just last as long as the total amount of fuel supply, but it, but it burns up, you know, as um, maybe um, the square or the cube of the fuel supply. So if a star is 10 times more massive than the sun, it'll be a thousand times more profligate with its energy, and therefore its energy simply will not last. And so these massive stars have, um, <clears throat> have lifetimes maybe of um, hundreds of millions of years, rather less than um, the case of the sun uh, is intended, much less. And so we have, um, we can actually catch these in action, and there's so much energy release, there are actually explosions when these neutron stars form. Now, I'll get to black holes in a moment. Uh, that's if I go to a still more massive star, then you can't even stop with a neutron star. But the beauty of a neutron star is um, that um, has led to um, rather wonderful discoveries in astronomy, because we now um, see neutron stars they are reinvigorated, okay, and they turn out to, um, um, while they're young, they spin because so much has collapsed. They spin up very rapidly. They, a star rotates slowly, but when it collapses, you know, angular momentum is conserved and it spins more rapidly. And that's what, uh, the neutron star is rapidly spinning, and it's um, observable as what we call a pulsar because it, it emits very strong radio waves that have been discovered um, in, in the past um, uh, few decades, which I'm going to tell you a bit about. The, the other fate, of course, is in the more extreme case to a black hole, and I'll come to that in a moment. But let's now um, think more about, about um, um, this now is, 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 is much more, um, the, the more massive star, we, it's, it's a much more dramatic giant phase, we call those a super giant, um, which are hundreds of times larger than the red giants, and then eventually that, that will explode dramatically. Okay, so that's a supernova. Okay, um, so we, we, we can estimate roughly, we know roughly how many massive stars there are because we see them, they're very bright, and we know, we can calculate how long their fuel supply lasts. So we know, we can, you can sort of figure out how rapidly the explosions occur. And so we believe that in the Milky Way, or in galaxies like our galaxy, 
there should be at least once a century we should see an explosion of one of these stars, massive stars, and it should be very, very bright. And so because it happens once a century, then you know, that's a long time for an astronomer to sit behind his telescope. Um, so what you do is you look at 100 galaxies. Okay? And then statistically, it tells you on the average there should be one every year. Or you look at 1,000 galaxies and then you'll get one every month, and so forth, or 10,000, then one a night, on the average, right? So that's the way that you um, perform this test. And so here's one example um, of a nearby galaxy, a bit like our own, a spiral galaxy called Messier 74, um, where there you are, um, suddenly there appeared um, one night, and this lasted for a, uh, a few months, um, a very, very bright star. And you notice this star is... Um, uh, it, it's a very intense point of light. You can't resolve it, but the amount of light from this, it's a significant fraction of light from the entire galaxy. So for a brief time, this exploding star becomes one of the brightest objects in the universe, certainly in, in, by, by far in any nearby galaxies. Um, so we, we see these things. Um, and also, what about the Milky Way? So the Milky Way, that's, you know, not much closer than these distant galaxies, which are millions of light years, many millions of light years away, we should be seeing these things roughly once a hundred years on the average in our Milky Way. Well, you know, when I say it should happen once a hundred years, that's, you know, plus or minus, because this is statistics, right? So it's, it's an average rate, but we do have some good examples in the past. Um, so the best known example occurred in 1054 AD, where there were very few astronomers in the world as far as we can tell, who were actively not engaged in warfare, but actually had time to look at the skies. Um, and um, so in China especially, um, uh, they saw, they noted in their records, uh, a bright, what they call a guest star, which appeared in July or August of 1054, that um, was almost as bright as, um, almost as bright as the moon, that they, they reported being six times brighter than Venus, and it lasted for a month in the constellation of Taurus. So all of this we can reconstruct from reading um, the ancient Chinese records um, in um, so uh, catalogued, you know, in, in a certain uh, era of a certain dynasty, first year, first year of the month, um, the guest star with the Chinese calendar appropriate, uh, a guest star has appeared to the southeast of Tangwan that presumably is what we now call the crab, several inches away, that... that it's not, you know, that's how you, you could imagine a primitive astronomer measuring things after a year or more. Period. So we have records like this from China. And so that is our best example. And we have been able to follow this up with modern astronomy. And lo and behold, in that place, there is the remnant of this explosion, a nebulosity that um, is, is expanding. Um, it will not um, stay around forever. In 100,000 years, it will be long dispersed. But if you catch it within a thousand years, then it's, it's a very impressive nebula. And so this is the Crab Nebula. And in the center of the Crab Nebula, there is a spinning neutron star, um, which is glowing in light, actually. And because it's spinning um, and the light comes out in a lopsided way, it, and it spins roughly, you know, um, 30 times a second, so you see these, uh, these light flashes periodically. And that's how we identified it. For a long time, people had seen uh, an extra star, a white star in the centre, thought it might be the remnant, um, or possibly related to the remnant, the neutron star. But eventually, um, it was found to be a pulsating star. Um, and unique 
to uh, this explosion because at the rate at which these pulses slowly decay points back to 1054, more or less, when the explosion occurred. Quite an amazing story. Um, uh, people have looked at other records of um, what might have happened in 1054. This is something I encourage those of you who are into petroglyphs to think about. Um, so there are many sim symbols like this that one finds in petroglyphs. This is another example which might or might not have indicated um, uh, a guest star um, roughly as bright as the moon. Okay, that's, that's highly debatable whether that's real, but the, these symbols are fairly, uh, one, one finds them commonly. Um, okay, so we call this spinning neutron star, um, um, which is fairly young, shining, still after birth, a pulsar. Um, and it emits radio waves. It's like a basically, it's like a, spin, a lighthouse with a spinning beam, which beams radio waves at us. Um, and this was um, uh, discovered um, around 1967 by a PhD student at Cambridge called Jocelyn Bell Burnell and um, as uh, part of her thesis work and um, as things go it was her supervisor and others who ordered the Nobel Prize for discovery uh, some 10 or 20 years later. So it's a major discovery and um, Jocelyn has since been recognized that with many other things but it, it's um, you know typical of the way science goes to some extent that um, you know, the role of women is somewhat underestimated, I think. Uh, that's, uh, and uh, everyone was pleased just the other day to see the Nobel Prize in physics be shared by a, um, a female lady physicist. Okay, um, so here then is the, uh, a, another view of this, how this pulsar works. So you have to imagine now a rapidly spinning star, compact star of neutrons, um, still highly energized when it formed because it was very hot at formation, and um, its, its additional parent star had, it was spinning, and so the compact remnant was spinning rapidly. The initial parent star was magnetized, had a magnetic field, and so the compact remnant also is magnetized. And this combination of energy release and magnetic fields gives you a very strong radio beam. Okay? And that is how the pulsars were discovered. And so as the pulsar spins around, um, this radio beam, um, you know, the Earth may be over here somewhere, and so it shines at the Earth and comes back, you know, some tiny fraction of a second later, again and again and again. And that's how these pulsars, these rapidly, uh, uh, ra rapidly varying, but with extreme regularity, neutron stars were discovered. So the speed at which, the rate at which this pulse is, is very, very constant. It, in fact, these pulsars are, are, are among the best clocks we have in the universe because they, they maintain um, this very accurate timing for, um, they're slowing down very slowly, but it takes them many years to slow down completely. Okay, so that's the way um, we're fairly confident that um, these neutron stars are now being observed routinely as pulsars. And then when we zero in to the center of the Crab Nebula, again, with, this is now with modern X-ray telescopes, we see this amazing phenomenon. Right? We can now see, we can't see the pulsar directly, but it's over there somewhere. It's spinning rapidly, and all of this um, hot glowing gas is heated up by the energy released from the pulsar. And then there is uh, a big jet of material. Part of this is the beam that comes to us and gives us the pulsar. But there's lots of other debris around. And all, all, of this, all of this turbulent gas which is being excited is due to this, this remnant being powered by the energy release from this slowly fading away neutron star. Slowly it'll take it many, many thousands of years to fade away, but it's, um, it's an energy source um, for the pulsar. 
So, um, <coughs> this is a way we understand neutron stars. You have to imagine now that um, I said a white dwarf, the atoms were touching, and it's the electrons whizzing around that give you the pressure. Um, why do, you know, why can't you collapse any further? Well, the idea it's, um, has really come in part from um, our understanding of the quantum theory, which says that you cannot exactly pinpoint where any given particle is because of uncertainty in its position by, because of the quantum theory. And um, this uncertainty translates to a quantum effect, quantum pressure, which is what holds up the white dwarf. And that's from the effect of the electrons. Well, if I crush the electrons um, into the protons, and I form neutrons, and that's all that's left, I can squeeze things down even further. But I'm still left at the end of the day with some quantum effect now for the neutrons, but it's much more compact. So that's the idea. There are these two states of quantum matter, the white dwarf, which is for the electrons, the neutron star, which is where the neutrons, and that we would think normally is the end point. You can't do any better. And, but it turns out that even this is a little bit controversial in physics because we now believe that a, that a, that a, that a nucleus of an atom, a proton or a neutron, is actually made up of quarks. There are sub-nuclear sub particles. And um, these have been detected directly when you crash atoms together in accelerators. You can figure out they're made of structures. And so the theory says, it makes a prediction, that um, one day we'll discover a quark star. Now, we haven't found these yet, but there is something even more compact than a neutron star that is predicted, basically, by, um, by the theory of nuclear physics. So that's an interesting prediction. It would be amazing that we would actually have uh, something that test the fundamental parts of nuclear physics of structure in the sky. We haven't found them yet, but we expect that if we find so many neutron stars, why not, why not um, even more compact things too? But moving on, um, let's now go back to this question of um, enrichment, of the chemistry of our bodies. Where, where does this stuff all come from? So we really are, uh, everything in us, everything on the Earth, um, I mean, hydrogen is a minor component, but all the heavier stuff is actually made by nucleosynthesis, synthesis of the elements, nuclear fusion in stars. And it helps a lot if you have lots of neutrons, because it's when you add neutrons to protons that you can build up the heavier and heavier elements. Um, and so a neutron star is, is really a great place, um, because I have all these neutrons at the end of the day, maybe before I finally get to this point of the neutron star, there's this big explosion, and that explosion, the supernova, would be in a very neutron-rich environment. So you can imagine that would be a great place to make the, all the other elements, the ones much heavier than carbon. Um, that might include iron or um, tellurium or whatever. All these things we think are made in the debris of exploding stars, especially when I have a lot of neutrons around, which means so the carbon comes from these more ordinary things like planetary nebulae, from the explosions that, or the more slow collapses that form the white dwarf, all that expanding debris is the carbon and other stuff too, but the heavier stuff must have a more violent origin. That's what we think. So um, well here's a, a, a cartoon that sort of expresses how you might imagine seeing this. Um, so imagine um, this massive star, okay? So, um, evolving, center first heats up and makes helium. But then, it, you know, eventually in the center there's no more helium, so the center must heat up even more to make the next heavier element, which can give you more energy. And so th this goes on, um, and so in, in this case you see the outer part of the star is made of helium, leftover helium, 
and there was a layer inside where the helium was burnt into carbon, but even then you ran out of energy, and so inside that, it's like an onion shell, there's something even more exotic, more heavier inside, and the trouble is that when you get to iron, iron is um, the, the most stable element in the universe, you can't actually um, get any more energy out of iron by, by fusion of particles. So iron is the end, it's, it's a bit like the ultimate slag heap for stars, and then, when you run out of iron, the star must explode. You have all this mass out there, and in this explosion, what you're left with is this iron core, which is now so crushed by gravity it turns into a neutron star, um, but then the outer parts have all exploded away in the supernova, and they are full of all these elements, like not just carbon now, but nitrogen and oxygen, and all this other great stuff that we need. Um, but, so, that, 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 that's, that, that, so, so that's the origin of... of of most of us, basically, from environments, explosions like this. Okay, um, but you'd like to ideally um, do even better because there are, other, uh, there are lots of elements heavier than iron, right? Uranium, uh, gold, whatever. You want to understand where do these come from? They could not come from this simple idea of a massive star turning into a neutron star. What you have to do is, is something we think, which is a little more exotic, which is maybe to bang two neutron stars together. Okay? Uh, sometimes, you know, these stars will be in binary systems. Stars, many of the stars, the massive ones, have companions. Uh, they're massive, pair of massive stars. So one dies, and eventually the other will die. And so I will then have two, a pair of neutron stars together uh, in a sort of a dance, an orbit around each other. But one day, those two stars will eventually fuse together. The orbit will just, they'll lose energy from their gravity eventually, and then I will have an almighty explosion, and the only thing that can happen then is to, um, is to actually um, make a black hole, um, which I'm going to come to in a second or two about black holes. So that's one way we think we make black holes, um, and, but at the same time as you make this black hole, there's, there is um, this highly neutron-rich material there. So it's, it's the environment we believe where all the heavy elements are made, gold, whatever. And um, so... Uh, it's, uh, and you can look for these things because um, in principle you should get a burst of radiation, we think in gamma rays, and gam we have telescopes that look for gamma rays, um, and, but maybe um, the most exciting thing of all, which is much more definitive, that proved that we finally were seeing this, just discovered a year ago, was um, when these two neutron stars come together, they actually give you a, a flash of gravitational waves. I'll explain what they are now, they're just waves in the gravity field that are the ultimate form of energy release. And from the shape of those waves, you can figure out the masses of the stars falling together. And we believe that, you know, and, and at the same time, we astronomers detected gamma ray flashes, and we believe that that indeed was this elusive source of the, of the gold in the universe that we've been looking for for many years. Okay, so this gets me to black holes. Um, okay, so... <clears throat> Two neutron stars merging together, that, that's wonderful for chemistry, but the most massive stars of all, um, they're not going to make neutron stars. Um, they're going to make black holes. Um, and so that's the ultimate state of bringing matter together. It's so dense that nothing can escape, not even light. So a black hole is intrinsically invisible. Um, and so here's a great quote um, that, um, uh, from John Wheeler, who invented the term black holes. He compared it to the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. It faded away, leaving behind only its grin. A star that collapses to make a black hole fades away. 
there remains behind only gravitational attraction, the attraction of disembodied mass. Um, so that's all there is. Now, uh, fortunately, um, there is a way to find these. And um, interestingly enough, um, the, the pioneer of this idea was um, John Mitchell um, in the 18th century, um, an English um, uh, academic and surveyor and um, <clears throat> eventually ordained when he left Cambridge, um, who realized that I could imagine the end point of a star being so compact that not even light could escape. And so this was uh, his concept of a black hole. And that, um, it took a couple of centuries before Einstein's theory came along of how mass curved space, that, that was the essence of Einstein's theory. And you can see Einstein, uh, right, in this cartoon. Um, and this guy, John Wheeler, invented the, the name. And so imagine space being whatever it is, normal, you know, and then suddenly there's a region where space is so confluent and so curved that the higher the curvature, the higher the mass, that's Einstein's theory, mass curved space, and it's so curved that light, light is trapped there. So we, of course, the reason we believe this now is that in 1918, um, we measured the first proof of this by looking at stars near the sun during a, the eclipse of the, an eclipse of the sun. Um, one could measure the effect, a tiny effect, but demonstrate that the passage of light from those stars to us was slightly curved by the presence of the sun. You couldn't see those stars outside only during the eclipse because they were close to the limb of the sun, but their position being slightly off, and then when the sun had moved in some other direction, they were back to their normal position. That proved that space was changing trajectories, and space, in some sense, was curving. The light didn't go in straight lines anymore. And this, a black hole, is the ultimate example of that. So space is doing something very bizarre, but it does mean that when this happened, um, and um, if a star collapses on a short time, then space is changing. And the fact that space is changing means the gravity field is changing, and this gives you some hope for measuring things, just as when you, um, you know, you wave, uh, uh, you change um, the magnetic field, or the electric field around a magnet, you can generate electromagnetic waves, radio waves, for example. So when you change gravity rapidly, you can shake the gravity field, and, and there are sudden changes in gravity, very small ones, but you can make what we call gravity waves. Okay, so that, um, okay, so to back up slightly, um, you know, if it's black and it looks like a hole, I'd say it's a black hole, okay. Um, we can do a little bit better than that. So here's now, let's consider another supernova remnant. So now we imagine that in this remnant, which um, was um, one of the last ones to be seen in the Milky Way, actually, and um, by the astronomer Tycho Brahe in the 17th century, we, we are overdue for another one, actually. But in this case, there is no evident, there is no neutron star in the center. And so we speculate that this was a massive star that might have... Um, collapsed to leave us this wonderful remnant that we observe today, a few hundred years after the explosion. Um, but um, perhaps there is a black hole lurking in the middle, we don't know. But, um, so this is a beautiful image of the explosion, because you can see these hot gas, these are X-ray glowing shells as the gas expands, full of this rich debris, which is going to you know, be useful for future generations of life, for future planetaries, whatever. But this one didn't seem to leave a black hole behind, a neutron star behind. Okay, but that's but the absence of evidence um, is not the best way to proceed. Um, you want to do more than that. So here now is some slightly uh, more direct, still not 
completely direct evidence for a black hole. So theory says that, now imagine um, the, a star has collapsed to make a black hole and it's got a companion around it, which is still doing its normal stuff, right? It's still burning nuclear elements and has an atmosphere and all this stuff, just like the sun or maybe a bigger star than the sun. And if the star swells up um, as it ages to be a, a giant star, it's going to swell up and it's going to leak lots of that stuff into its companion, which is a black hole. So we predict that um, next to this star, surrounded by a black hole, all this outer stuff should be basically feeding into this black hole. It'll be spinning because the whole thing is turning around, and eventually it'll leak into the center. And when it gets into the center, then this is the sort of phenomenon that we expect to see. Um, there should be this immense release of energy when you finally get into the black hole, and that does create explosions. Um, one of the phenomena that theorists expect is a jet of material, uh, very hot plasma going out near the speed of light. It's one of the manifestations of all this sudden energy from hitting a black hole and just lots of x-rays and all this stuff as well. And so we look for these things, and indeed we do find any number now, a good number, dozens of x-ray stars which are known to be, found to be in binaries, and although you can only see its companion, its companion emitting normal light, um, by measuring the spectrum of this star, you can figure out there's a massive object near it, which is presumably the source of the glowing x-rays, because ordinary star would not glow that well in x-rays, and that's our best evidence, um, uh, until, at least until very recently, for black holes. Okay, so, but everything changed um, just uh, uh, three years ago. Um, so we could suddenly move from this indirect method of looking at X-ray sources where you know, you, knew, you know there's a massive companion, too massive to be a neutron star. Must be a black hole. That was our argument. Theory says that if it's more than a couple times the mass of the sun, the neutron star cannot exist. It must, you know, must be a black hole. Okay, okay, so what happened then? Um, we finally discovered directly black holes in the universe, even though they're completely invisible. And so this is due to the shaking of the gravity field. So what you have to imagine now is that, um, and this took a century from Einstein's prediction until his discovery. It's quite a, a, one of these amazing chases in, in physics that finally culminated. Um, and um, so here are two black holes. Now, I said you might have a star orbiting a black hole, but eventually that's the, the star will turn to a black hole if it's massive. So you have two black holes orbiting each other. It's rare, but it's got to happen. Um, and they eventually will merge and make a bigger black hole. And in that process, the curvature of space, the shaking of space, the gravity field of space will be shaken up for a brief time. Um, and as the thing orbits, you get a wave and they come together. It's like a wave, a periodic phenomenon, which already culminates in the final uh, uh, combination, the merger of the two. So that's what you expect, um, this, um, and, and theorists predicted what it should look like. So they said that um, as the, these two black holes spiral in together and eventually merge, one should see this, um, because they're, they're in orbit, you should see this um, gradually speeding up phenomenon, and suddenly, boom, what they call it a chirp, actually, very high frequency um, phenomenon, then, then it's gone, and then you've made the black hole. And so, curiously, from... The, um, from studying the, the strength of these uh, peaks and the width between them, you can infer how massive these things are. So you can actually measure the mass of the black hole. 
um, because the more massive uh, they are, the faster they go around each other. So that gives you the frequency. So you can infer the mass of the black hole. So it's all very beautiful, theoretically, and then it was discovered. So the way it was discovered was using um, basically laser beams, which reflect many times of, of mirrors, in this case, three kilometers apart, and, um, and, and the laser beams are, are recombined. And the idea is that as a gravity field, changing field, from emerging black hole, somewhere distant space passes by, you get slightly different jiggling of the light source in this beam and this beam, right? The, 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 the length is slightly perturbed, very, very slightly. And if you watch this over hundreds and hundreds of reflections, you can look for this tiny signal, this changing gravity wave signal. So now, this is a very, relatively a crude, a crude instrument. Ideally, you need to do um, triangulation. You need a number of these experiments spaced around the Earth to give you a baseline so you can zero in on where this object is because this one instrument would not be very good at localizing the phenomenon if they found it. So indeed, we have another instrument. Um, these are two American instruments um, in Louisiana, one in Washington State, one in Louisiana. S same principle, um, laser beams, um, the light being recombined, um, and then looking for this slight pattern. And uh, the newest entry to the scene is in uh, Pisa, this is the Italian counterpart. And it's important to have this huge baseline because it was only with the entry, actually, of the Italian instrument that we actually got enough accuracy to pinpoint um, the merging neutron star I talked about earlier, which, which gave you a gravity wave signal. And we could measure its mass, again, from the frequency of these things. And um, that wasn't a black hole. But in the other cases, they're all black holes. And so then, um, and here is the sort of thing they measured. So I showed you what the theorists had expected and so this is the data from the first event they discovered in 2015. So you can see this, this chirp, this fire, you know, obviously it's not as perfect as the theorist dream, but it's exactly, it's pretty much the same thing. You can see these gradual spinning closer together, spiraling again, and the final chirp, and then the, the final black hole is made. And so, and this was um, in, um, in, Wa in Washington State, uh, this was in Louisiana, and when you, they combined the data, et cetera, um, and from this, they infer how far away this is. It turns out to be this one. These are rare, but amazing they could see them hundreds of millions of light years away. And so this one was a lot of hundreds of millions of light years away. They could figure out, with one, with one event, you can't really be sure how many there are in the universe. They've now had four or five events, so they can pin down roughly the frequency they expect in this big volume of the universe. And it's enough to give them signals every year as they continue observing. So that's for sure, because we can survey a large part of the universe. And finally, they can determine what the mass of the black hole was, these two that came together to merge, and the final black hole was 30 solar masses. So that's what we've been learning from these uh, remarkable experiments. Uh, and um, so we now call this the graveyard of stars, um, what we're uh, uh, looking for. So I'm just focusing on the... Um, on the more massive ones here, the, the neutron stars uh, and the black holes. Okay, so, um, and so this is the, the, the mass range. And so this is the mass going up. Okay? And so neutron stars are what, you know, a couple of times the mass of the sun. Okay? Um, and then with these X-ray uh, telescopes, we found these X-ray sources, which are known to have black hole companions, so it's indirect. Um, and, and then we can measure their masses. They're, they're a few to 10 solar masses, which means the parent star was probably 20 solar masses or 30 solar masses, and then shot off lots of debris and left this black hole behind. 
And then finally, these new objects found by the gravitational wave experiments, uh, which are up there at 20 or 30 solar masses. And so they're, they're pretty much um, somewhat larger than we expected, but that, that, that's the fate of what a massive star will do. And that's, um, uh, so we're now covering the whole mass range of, um, of the endpoint of the death of stars. Okay, um, so let me now take you one step further. So uh, that's what, all I want to say about um, stellar death for the moment. Uh, the, there is another phenomenon to do with black holes. We're discussing compact objects. And so this is the, um, maybe the ultimate version of a compact object. Where now you not just imagine the fate of a star um, leaving something compact behind, but the fate of an entire galaxy. Can you imagine this phenomenon on a, on a much larger scale? Of course, you're not going to get the whole galaxy to collapse because stars have lots of you know, orbital energy. They're, you can't just bring them together like that. But in the center of the galaxy, we have a really high density of stars. You can imagine that enough stars are hitting each other and their debris could form a central compact object. And the compact object, if it's massive enough, nothing will stop it collapsing. And so we could have a very massive black hole. And in fact, we have a special name. We call these supermassive black holes because they really are many, many times the mass of any black hole I've talked about so far. So here's an example um, in a nearby spiral galaxy where in the center, you can't see it, but the stars are very close together. And they have, um, you know, we, we measure their orbital motions from taking spectra of the galaxy. And in examples like this, you see that as you point your telescope or you take spectra closer into the center, it's like measuring the Doppler shift. You can see the stars are orbiting more rapidly, which is odd because normally when you go into the center of a galaxy, the orbit speed should be roughly, you know, it shouldn't go up dramatically, but it does in some galaxies. And this tells you there is some mass, extra mass in the middle that you don't see in the ordinary light. So this is an example of how we decide, you know, inside that galaxy, there might well be a black hole to explain the motions of the stars. And in this, in this case, you need something that is not just 10 or 100 solar masses, but millions of times the mass of the sun, hence the name supermassive black hole. So that's an inference um, for a number of galaxies around us. And it so happens that these black holes, as stuff falls into them, are also great energy sources, X-rays and all this stuff as stars get destroyed. And so that's another way you can look for these things. So um, here is maybe the most beautiful example of a black hole that we can't see directly, but we sure is there. Um, so here's a, here's a galaxy, it's called the Sombrero Galaxy. And um, again, from the motions of the stars, um, our best understanding of, of those is that there's a black hole in the center that weighs 100 million times the mass of the sun. Now, to give you some feeling for what we're talking about here, um, that the, uh, when we discuss black holes, there's a certain size attached, which was first discovered by um, um, Schwarzschild, Martin Schwarzschild, uh, sorry, Carl, Carl Schwarzschild, um, and... Um, uh, in around um, uh, 1916, 17, just after Einstein's discovery. And that size is typically kilometers, okay, or tens of kilometers for black holes of stellar type mass. If I have 
a supermassive black hole, then suddenly it's millions of kilometers. The size of the black hole and the ray over which it perturbs all stuff around it. But that's a tiny, tiny fraction of anything we could ever resolve with a telescope. So all of this is, is you have to do indirectly. You have no choice, okay? Uh, there's one exception which we'll come to in a second when we have a bit of choice, okay? And that, that's a nice story in itself. But so why are we so convinced that there are, there are these strange phenomena going on in the center? Well, here's um, one piece of indirect evidence. Um, so this is a giant galaxy, um, one of the largest ones near us, called Messier 87. It's entirely a round galaxy. All this is the unresolved light from the stars. In the center, you see this very bright, bright nucleus, which we think is partly being heated up by the effect of stuff falling onto a black hole. But remember I said that this enormous release of energy gives you jets of hot plasma, and lo and behold, we have this um, jet coming out from the center um, of uh, this galaxy, seen in the radio waves and in other, other radiation too, um, in ultraviolet, etc., which we believe then is energy from stuff feeding the black hole, being ejected out at basically the speed of light. So um, that's, um, and here is uh, the ultimate example of that phenomenon. So now you're looking at, this is a, a galaxy in Hercules, and here's the galaxy, okay, over here, it's a, it's a fairly normal massive galaxy. And then when you take an image with a radio telescope, you see this, um, this jet and enormous clouds of plasma. And the only way we understand, again, this incredible energy source from a galaxy is if there is a black hole, a very massive one in the center, fueling this phenomenon. Stuff falls into the black hole. It's moving so fast when it hits the outer part of the black hole, that huge amounts of energy get released. So that seems to be our best understanding of how this might happen. All, of course, aided and embedded by magnetic fields twisting things up. Okay. Um, so close to home, I'm now going to show you the best proof that we have that there is a black hole in our own Milky Way galaxy, close to home. And this one weighs in at 4 million times the mass of the sun. So here's the indirect evidence first, okay? A few million years ago, there was a big explosion in the center of the Milky Way. How do we know this? Well, when we take a map of the sky with a, a telescope that doesn't gamma rays, a space telescope that doesn't gamma rays, we see evidence um, in the gamma rays for the bubble-like features. And so a cartoon of this is over here. So we infer from this data that a few million years ago there was a giant explosion. You know, that itself doesn't get you directly to, to the black hole. But then um, uh, we now uh, uh, can measure the stars in the center near our galaxy. And if I can possibly get this movie to work which I doubt I'll be able to do, but let's see. Yes. Um, so now, over five years, this is the, the year you see in the top left, you can measure the motions of stars. You take an image every, every, every few months, and they made a movie out of this, right? And so from the orbits of these stars, you can infer the stars are moving much faster than the average star in the middle of the Milky Way in Sagittarius. And so we infer from this that exactly in the center of the galaxy, from where that explosion originated millions of years ago, there is something very massive lurking there, right? Because we see it from the motions of the speed of the stars. Nothing else that we know of could be, give you so much mass in so compact a space to explain the, the speed up in motions, the gravity that we're measuring from this. So it, it, I, I think this is spectacular evidence that right in the center, uh, 
the, the motions of these stars are basically, uh, you know, right over there, there's a, and that black hole weighs in at four million times the mass of the sun. That's our inferred. Uh, okay. Um, so, um, finally, um, what else can these supermassive black holes do? Well, they can rip up stars. Okay, if stars come too close, it'll be pulled apart because one star, one part of the star feels a slightly higher gravity force than the other. You know, the, 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 the feet of this guy will, will expect a greater force than, than his head, and so he'll be ripped apart, or she'll be ripped apart. And this is sort of like a feeding frenzy, and you get intense energy release, you get flares, basically. Uh, bursts of gamma rays and x-rays, all this sort of thing can happen. Um, and so that's the indirect way. And then finally, um, we want to um, catch up with gravity waves. How on earth do you cope with supermassive black holes? Well, the problem is, um, for an ordinary black hole, the kilometer scale of the Schwarzschild radius, the gravitational effects occur on that scale, is kilometers. So if I have telescopes that are kilometers across, laser beams, basically. I can measure the waves when this black hole forms, right? Because it's shaking. But for the supermassive black holes, there are 100 million solar masses, right? And therefore, the typical wave is 100 million kilometers. That's really, that's really tough, okay? So um, I can't get that directly, but I can do millions of kilometers if I'm clever. And that won't get me the huge black holes, but it'll get me maybe the more common ones, the real, the not quite so massive ones, the million solar mass black holes, because they will have typically a million kilometer type, you know, set, you know, orbits and so shake the field on millions of kilometers. How on earth do you build a telescope a million kilometers across? Okay, so there is one way that we're going to do this, and this is going to be a launch in 2034. The idea is you have three satellites. You do, again, you send laser beams between the three. And they typically are a million kilometers apart, or thereabouts, okay? Which is in space, that's okay, because, you know, the, the, uh, the Earth-Sun um, distance is 96 million kilometers. So, you know, it's just part of an orbit of the Earth. So you space them, um, you know, away in a convenient part, trajectory in space, this triangulation. And the idea then is you, if you shine the bounce these laser beams with that precision, you can then look for the waveforms, the wiggles in gravity field, um, from the interference between these laser beams. So that, that's, uh, that, that, that's probably the next thing that's going to happen. Um, and this is um, my final summary slide, so taking you to what's going on now and what's going on in the future, for the future of compact objects and black holes in particular. So to summarize, right now um, and in the next year, we'll be observing lots and lots of black holes merging, forming, from our terrestrial telescopes. These are these laser beams on the Earth. We have a new one coming up in India in a few years, etc. So it's a rapidly expanding field, making the ones we have more sensitive. And so then in 2020, there's a whole other new game that's appearing. Um, and that is um, the pulsars, which I said were amazing clocks. If you look at many of them in the sky, you can use them as basically elements of a cosmic telescope because again, their timing would be affected between different pulsars. If, if this long wavelength gravity pulse goes by them, it'll affect one slightly off from the other, and that will give you another amazing type of signal that you can look for with enough, enough neutrons, enough pulsars pulsing at you in the sky. So the future is bright for that type of telescope. It'll just measure the stochastic, it won't pinpoint individual events, but it'll see this background of waves from merging, merging massive black holes. And then, uh, and then finally, um, in um, about 
15 years or so, um, ESA is projected with USELP is projected, but mostly it's an ESA experiment, it's projected to have um, uh, this experiment with um, space-borne um, lasers, basically, a triangulation million kilometers apart, and that should directly get us into the realm of supermassive black holes. So um, we're going to learn a lot more about um, black holes and compact objects in the, in the near future. So thank you.